In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at Asperient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cami and Sandy. Hi, this is Cami. Sylvie Sidarnik is our guest today on Money Tales. Sylvie made an extreme career pivot in her third act of life. She had a career in corporate communications, and in her mid-40s, she decided to pursue comedy writing. As a matter of fact, Sylvie was the only middle-aged woman in her second city writing class. She blossomed in that environment and has been facing the ultimate question ever since. How much is she willing to give up to live a creative life? Sylvie is an actor, writer, and content strategist. In 2016, she was cast as a recurring character on Amazon's Patriot, which took her to Prague and Paris for filming. She also appears in Dan Nearing's Sister Carrie, currently on the festival circuit. Sylvie is currently producing and fundraising for a film she wrote entitled R.I.P. Hi, this is Sandy. Here are three key Money Tales conversation topics Sylvie hits on in this conversation. First, the financial implications and risk when taking the plunge into a dramatic career switch later in life. Second, the financial instability that working actors and writers face. The reality is that money is not going to be regular when you're working one show, one episode, and you may not work again. And third, how she made some very important money decisions that were driven by emotion and how they played out for her and her family. If you like this episode, be sure to share it with a friend and please subscribe to Money Tales. Now, on to our conversation with Sylvie Sidarnak. Hey there, Money Tales listeners. This is Cami, and I'm here with my co-host, Sandy. Hello, Cami. Hi, Sandy. Tell me, any money conversations you've had lately that you'd like to share with our audience? Cami, we're having a big one here at our house. Our Uh-oh. son just got his first parking ticket this week. Oh. Two violations. And it's really interesting. The total cost is pretty high for someone making minimum wage. And he is prepared to pay for the parking ticket, but he feels that he was wronged. And he is going to spend some time on Saturday based on his own decision-making to fight this parking ticket. Good for him. I was excited that he is going to advocate for himself and not just give up and pay the ticket outright. So he has 21 days and he has a plan. He has a plan. I also appreciate what you said there, how expensive a parking ticket can be. And if you're making minimum wage, that takes a big hit. 
Yeah, it's a big deal. So I, I'm not disappointed that he got the parking ticket. These are things that happen in life. And I think he's justified in his request to fight the ticket. I'm not sure if he'll be successful. I hope he is. But I'm delighted by the process and that he's using it as a learning opportunity. And, and I think he will take something away from this. Good luck to him. Well, I'd like to welcome our guest today, Sylvie Sardarnak. It is wonderful to be talking with you on Money Tales. It is very nice to be here. Thank you. Please introduce yourself and share with us two to three pivotal moments which impacted you, influencing the person you are today. My name is Sylvie Sidarnak, and I started out as a person who had a gift for languages. And so that was sort of the path I was going to go down. But then I came to the U.S. for the first time when I was 15, and I went back to France, where I was from, and I said to my parents, I have found my home. I will move to the U.S., and I will be happy ever after kind of thing. And so I worked toward that goal to do that. I got to Chicago in 1985 with literally a trunk full of books and a job, though, because I wasn't that into risk that it would be something that I would do, just pick up and go. So I started in communications. I started a career in corporate communications with a focus on financial communications. And for a while, that was great. I was doing still the acting and performing on the side, which I had done as I was growing up. But I had to put it aside for a while. So then I got married, had children, and another moment came where I had to make a decision about what I wanted to do about myself. And that's the moment when at 47, I decided to go to Second City and undertake a program in comedy writing. That was the moment where I knew that my life was shifting somehow. And then fast forward through a divorce, a very painful and expensive one. And I decided that there was little time to waste. And in my third of life, as we call it, I went back to acting and writing for TV. Hopefully I'm producing something this summer. But that has been my path. Yeah, amazing. At 15, how did you know that you really wanted to make your home in the United States? It just hit me like a ton of bricks. It was one of those physical, emotional, symbiotic moment when you just knew. And it's very difficult to explain to people that have not experienced it. It's a very strange thing, but it also was in my blood. I think my great-grandfather immigrated from Spain to France and never went back. And he had starved as a young person in Spain. I mean, literally he was telling me stories when he was, when I was little, eating cockroaches in soup that was just basically water. And so we had this fear all his life of not having enough. And then he went through two world wars, which didn't help. So I remember my first sort of introduction to, I don't have enough, I don't have enough, I don't have enough, was him. And then wanting to ply me with more pastries than I needed or more food that I needed, because he always was afraid of not having enough. And that applied to money as well. Thank you for sharing that experience with your grandfather. How was money handled by other members of your family as you were growing up in France? 
Well, in my family, we didn't really talk about money very much. My parents were middle-class teachers, so they were civil servants. They had a fixed income. And the only time I heard about money was when my mother complained she didn't have enough to do the things she wanted to do. But it wasn't something where we would sit down and like we had friends whose parents would talk to them about investing and that kind of thing. And it wasn't at all like that in my family. We didn't talk about it. We just used money to buy the things we needed and save to go on vacation and do other things. But it wasn't like, oh, you need to do this and do that. So it was very different. Sylvie, tell us about coming to the United States. How did money play a role in that decision or did it? It didn't, actually. I mean, it was more a, I need to be where I belong. And the United States is where I belong. I know that. I had a Rotary scholarship to go study in Minneapolis one year. I taught in Ohio another year before coming back. I finished my master's. You know, education in France was free pretty much. So we didn't have to worry about college loans or debt and that kind of thing. But I also knew that as a person who was, I was trilingual at the time, I also spoke Spanish fluently. I would have to find a job before I could do anything. Because again, I wasn't that kind of adventurous person where I would just pick up and go. So I was working as a teacher and a translator in Paris for a school. And one of my students happened to work for a company that had offices here in the US. And I applied for a job, got the job. They did all the visa work, that kind of thing. And I came here. And I was home. I was home for the first time in my life. It was just one of those, it's, again, it's strange to describe because people don't normally go through this. But yeah, I was home. So you're a bit risk averse. Correct. I am. But by the same token, I have decided in the third part of my life to do yes. something that is completely risky. <laughs> That's what I'm hearing. So I don't know what to tell you. That just sums up, I guess, the, the person that I am. <laughs> it's just complicated. I love it. So when you were here in the United States and you, you just got here, were you doing some acting on the side? I started out, but then I ended up working for a French bank. And my boss at the time there was not a very, well, pleasant person and not an understanding person as far as doing things outside of work were concerned. And it became a dangling carrot. I was applying for a green card. And it was one of those things where she was putting pressure on, well, we can't do this. So long story short, I ended up putting acting on the side then and just focusing on corporate communications. And for a while, I actually was extremely happy. I'm working for the French bank. Obviously, I could use my language skills as well. Then I went over and worked for Comerica Bank, which had a new office or newer offices in Illinois. There been mergers and that kind of thing. And it was a dream corporate communications job, that job at Comerica. And I actually am still in touch with people that I worked with there as well as the people from Credit Agricole. So there was a really good culture in both places. I was fortunate. But then as the bank set itself up to be acquired by another bank, and I was already in the process of starting a family I decided that then I should probably just go and work on my own for a while, see how it went. And I started my own practice then. That's when you started losing the risk aversion. You became an entrepreneur. 
Yes, when I was well, I also had a husband at the time that made good money, was going up in his company really, really fast. And so there was a cushion there in case things went sour. <laughs> Which they did. I mean, the, you know, it was it was it was great. And it, it allowed me to raise my kids and have a business. And what were you doing, Sylvie? What was your business? So I was doing corporate, I was also doing strategic communications. My emphasis is messaging and positioning. And still to this day, I, I love doing that. And I also have a side of my brain that likes more logical things and SEO search engine optimization has become a big passion of mine. Well, I love messaging and positioning too. So you and I share that. It's the foundation of everything. So you can't have anything to communicate without good messaging. Sylvie, tell us about this period of time in your life when you decided to go to Second City. What was happening for you? What was happening, you know, I was in my mid-40s. I lived in the suburbs. I had become a person that, and I was unhappy in my marriage already. My husband was traveling all the time. He wasn't really available to help with the children or do anything else. And I had always been a very creative person and a more vibrant person. And I was losing that. And I had lost myself in my children too, which is what you do, right? You raise your kids. And so I remember I was involved with Lyric Opera of Chicago. And I remember at one point watching a YouTube video from, he was a professional who also decided to turn his guitar kit into a comedy skit. And he said he had gone to Second City. And I thought, why not? I'm going to sign up. I said to my husband, you're okay. I'm going to be gone. You know, I'll be doing this. And I have to tell you, the very first time I walked into the first level of the comedy writing program at Second City, it was pretty intimidating because it was mainly young males in their 20s whose focus for comedy was pretty much private parts. You know what I mean? It was like that kind of humor that they were into. Here I was, and I was at the time, I was the only middle-aged woman in that group. But it was a place where I blossomed and I went up all the levels and then we ended up producing our shows and I ended up helping with the design of the post. Of course, having a background in communications, I ended up doing all the stuff that was linked to that. And it was fabulous. It was just fantastic. And then one of my teachers invited me to join her private writing group. So then I did that. So when you're going up through Second City, I imagine that you're investing in yourself. You're paying for these classes. Did you need to pay for the productions as well? Was there a financial contribution there? No, for the productions, because it was the school, you know, it was the training center. It was basically what we could do or have friends do for us and that kind of thing. So it was more paying for the program. Obviously, every single class, every time you take a class anywhere, really, it's always $200, $300 for whatever number of weeks you're putting in. So yes, there's an investment, obviously, and no guarantee of return on anything. You know, there's no guarantee that you're going to be hired by anybody on the way out. There are way too many people with a creative bone that are trying to make it. And at that point, it sounds like you're thinking about it as a way to rediscover yourself and get back to who you were, not necessarily as a career shift. 
Correct. At the time, it wasn't a career shift. Acting wasn't even on the burner. It wasn't even in my mind at that point. I just wanted to get back and write and be creative and do what made me whole. It's so fun to think of your draw to comedy writing and being from a corporate standpoint. Were you writing about your experiences in corporate America? And well, sometimes, yeah. But you know, there is a portion of Second City that actually caters to corporate communications and to corporate communications offices. And you can actually hire them. In fact, we hired them to do some work for Comerica where you can write whole skits about different topics that are important in the workplace and turn them into comedy skits. But my inspiration for most of my sketches were my husband's dysfunctional family, I got to (laughs) say. Okay, tell us more. So, so I mean, he came from a very big family. And I'll just give an example. At the dining room table, they would all sit in order of birth. So you had dad at one end and mom at the other end. And around them, in descending order, were firstborn, secondborn, thirdborn. And the in-laws had to sit at a separate little table. The kitty table. Yeah, the kitty table. Well, the kitty table was in a different room, but we had our own little table for what we called ourselves the outlaws at the time because we weren't part. But, you know, things like that. One of the tips in comedy writing is okay, fish out of water. If you're a fish out of water, how do you write that? So you can imagine writing a sketch where you are the outsider, the outlaw, and you are observing all the fish that you're not part of. And then you're just a fish out of water, that kind of thing. There are all kinds of techniques you have to learn when you write comedy. And so this is one of them. So you're honing your craft at comedy writing. You're still in corporate America. I cater to corporate America. Yes, through my business. And then at one point, you decided to go into acting. Tell us about that transition and especially the money aspects of that, because that does sound a bit scary. That transition was gradual. I had gone through a very painful divorce, a betrayal in my marriage, and I was trying to figure out what to do to sort of heal myself. And at that point, I was in this writing group. We were very active. A friend of mine had just published a book. Another member of the group was publishing in the New York Times, you know, everybody was doing different things, right? And then I had other friends from the corporate world who went through some health situations. And I was also diagnosed with Hashimoto's, which is an autoimmune illness, which you can live with very well, but it still is something you have to be very careful about because of brain fog and all this stuff that goes with it. So you have to be able to handle it. But in particular, a friend of mine had just recovered from bladder cancer, and he had been in PR like me for decades. And he decided to start as background actor on the TV shows that were being filmed in Chicago. And he started posting about it. And I was intrigued. And I thought, oh, wait a minute, maybe this is a good way to learn what actually happens on a TV show. You're not going to act by being a background actor. But you're going to learn about how you film something. And that was super interesting to me. 
So I reached out to him, signed up with a couple of different companies that were doing background. And the minute I got on my first set, which was Mind Games, I was hooked. I knew, once again, it was almost the same feeling as when I first came here and I got off the plane and I was home. And somehow being on a TV set with all the organized chaos of it, I was home. So then I did this for a little bit. And then I went back to school for acting. I went to acting class because if you want to be really an actor, you have to work at the craft and actors go to school. You know, they get degrees, they get master's degree and degrees in acting. They do all this to get ahead as they're young. So as an older person, you have to go back to what you've learned, but also learn new things and more. And so that's what I started doing. And my way into a professional set as a union actor was actually because I speak French. I was cast in the show Patriot, which was developed at the time in 2016, I think it was. I was cast as one of the bilingual Luxembourg detectives. And from then on, the show just for we had two seasons and we filmed in Chicago, but also in Prague and then season two in Paris. Sylvie, that's amazing. Yes, it was fabulous. How do you even think about compensation as an actress? Patriot's a great, great, you know, you you score, you really achieve, but how does that all come to play? You score, but you also are very cognizant of the fact that this could be the only professional job you get in your lifetime, because unless you reach celebrity status, or really regularly working actor status, there is no guarantee. And this is the scary thing about this business, which is why the only way you can actually handle it is by being so passionate about it that you know you can't really function 100% doing anything else. That's the only way, because getting on a set is the high that you want in your life. But you understand that that money isn't going to be regular. It isn't going to come all the time. You're working one show, one episode, you may not work again. And also being in a regional market, there are differences compared to, let's say, being in LA. And I know a lot of people move to LA, not necessarily because they want to, because there's a lot of competition out there, but because somehow they will be able to get guest star roles on shows that are filmed back here and they will be paid more because they're now based in LA rather than being here where the casting directors for the local jobs may not have the same bargaining powers as the ones in LA. It's a brutal business, let's just say that. But it's a business that once you are part of it, it is something you need, you can't do without. That's so fascinating about the different regional markets and how the compensation comes together. There was recently a discussion in Atlanta between a casting director and an actor on Twitter that took off and just went viral because the casting director was just saying, hey, we have this role, it's great new series or whatever it was, and it's base rate. There's no negotiating. And this actor who had been in the business 30 years, who works regularly, responded, but why can't we get, I mean, it's not fair. Why can't we get money that is in relations to 
the experience we have. Why does it have to be? And the casting director responded in a very abrupt manner. And then everybody joined in and the casting director ended up having to apologize and all that. But that is sort of the reality of the business is that LA dictates and even if you have new shows here, like in Chicago, we have a few shows that are filming here, including the one Chicago shows. And the series regulars are all out of LA, obviously. You do get to audition and work on some of the shows here as co-stars and sometimes guest stars. But mostly, you're not going to get to be a series regular unless it's the beginning of a show. You're filming a pilot, it goes to series, and the series takes off. And then all of a sudden, your life has changed. So that's the dream. 600%. Yes. That's the dream also financially. Because then you're not tied into the base salaries anymore that are you know the base level for the union. You can negotiate. And then you have more power. You know, your agent has more power. You're... Manager, if you have a manager, has more power, and that's how it goes. Wow, the law of numbers, though. Yeah, you're part of a union, and then you have, obviously, you have a pension, and then you get, you qualify for residuals, and those residuals are negotiated every three years. There's a new contract for everything, and really, the union is trying to catch up with what's happening in the business, because with streaming platforms now, you're not getting compensated the same way. Certainly not as far as residuals are concerned. And then if a show goes into syndication, then there's all that. So the issue of money for an actor is a little bit kind of nebulous, but it shouldn't be because it is so difficult to have regular income as an actor. Oh, Sylvie, so you're doing work that you know in your core is the work you want to be doing. You have passion and purpose around it. With all these challenges that you're sharing on the money side, how do you make it work for yourself? Are you thinking about money all the time? Yes, you do. You think about money, not all the time, but quite constantly, and especially in my case, because I made the decision, which was an emotional decision of putting my daughter through five years of college. She went to architecture school at USC with the minimum help as imposed by the judge in our divorce agreement from my ex-husband. An education at USC costs about 80 grand a year now with grants and work study and you know all that it ended up being much less as she went through the program but the divorce agreement just stipulated that my ex-husband had to give me $16,000 a year that was it. So I was faced with the situation of telling myself, I do not want my daughter to be buried in loans. I do not want her to have the anxiety that comes with money. Ironically, she does have anxiety around money because that's, I think maybe she sees what I'm going through and that kind of thing, but she has a regular job. She works in a nice architecture firm and yet she's still concerned about it. And she really doesn't have any student loans except like one, she may have $3,000 or something in student loans, which is nothing. But yeah, so I made those emotional decisions about money to help her not have anxiety and fear related to money. 
But obviously, it's creating a lot of challenges for me with choosing the work that I want to do. Sylvie, were you talking with your daughter about money and and the length of your efforts to support her dreams? Yes, we did talk about it. We talked about it quite a bit. And I think maybe we didn't talk about it necessarily in the right way because she has a lot of guilt. (laughs) And I don't want her to feel guilty. And I've told her I have made certain decisions in my life that make it more difficult for me to just kind of brush off the issue of money. So that's on me. It's not on you, but it is in her nature as well to worry. So she's going to do it whether I like it or not. What a great message though. (laughs) It's true. You make decisions knowing full well what they are going to translate into. And so I'm fine with that. Sylvie, if money wasn't an object, how would your life be different? If money wasn't an object, I would throw myself in producing and writing and filming everything I could possibly do. This is what I want to do. This is where I shine. This is where I'm happy. When I am with a bunch of creative people, actors, directors, producers, gaffers, I'm also a photographer, an amateur photographer, but I love discussing photography with a director of photography and just kind of looking at angles and looking at finding beauty in the little things. If I could do that all day and then translate that and give it as a gift to people, I would. Tell us, what would be the dream acting role for you? I don't know if you've ever watched the series Bosch on Amazon. No. You should catch up. There were seven seasons and now they've done a like follow-up series that airs tomorrow. I'm not a part of it at all. But what I liked about that show and based on Michael Connolly's books is that it had quite a few older women with depth in their characters. Older women that look like regular women that had lived, that it felt, that, and they're smart as can be. And actually in the uh, Bosch legacy that drops tomorrow, Mimi Rogers is still there and she still has a great role in it. That is the kind of role that I want. That's why I'm writing too, because I want to write these roles that are not necessarily available for older women. Roles that show that we have lived, we have suffered, we have loved, we have laughed, we have had challenges, we still do, but we are vibrant, we exist, we have stories to tell. That's thrilling to hear you talk about that, Sylvie. And we wish you a lot of luck. Thank you. Can't wait to see what you produce this summer. As we wrap up our conversation, will you tell us what's your next money conversation going to be and who's it going to be with? It's going to be with myself, my next money conversation, and looking at where I'm at right now, what's coming down the pike. I'm raising money for this movie, so I am looking at what is coming in from donations, what I still need to raise, whether I'm going to have to pitch in some of my own money, whether my son is actually going to give me the money he promised he would give me for my own movie. He's doing very well. He has no money issues that I know of anyway, he would tell me. 
So that is the first conversation I'm going to have is with myself in terms of how much more comfortable are you with compromising to live the creative life that you want to live? What else are you going to give up on if you need to? That's the conversation for me. Sylvia, I really appreciate you raising this, that a conversation we have with ourselves is really important. It needs to go further, but it is such an important foundation. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us and your wonderful insights and exposing us to an industry that I personally don't have as much experience with and very fascinating. So thank you so much and appreciate you joining us on Money Tales. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Money Tales podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, share it with someone you think would benefit from listening and leave us a review on your favorite podcasting platform. Your ratings and reviews help more people find our podcast. If you're inspired to gain clarity and peace of mind about financial matters, don't hesitate to reach out to our team at Asperient. Go to asperient.com forward slash start a dialogue. Or you can email Sandy and me at podcasts at See you next time. Thank you.